This is Bragg, son of Balin, and you're listening to Light the Beacons, a Lotro podcast. Welcome to the world of Middle-earth. calls for aid and Brog shall answer ah mon dean welcome back to light the beacons a lotro podcast focusing on the interrupted mmorpg lord of the rings online as well as related topics in books movies gaming and the lore of jtok this is episode 31 and i am your host brag of the lonely mountain the celebratory and dwarf of ill repute Broadcasting live from our mobile Light the Beacons Middle-Earth-wide headquarters in Harndirian in Enidwaith. We're making our way back home to Moria across the rolling fields of Enidwaith. Um, I am standing on a stone promontory, which when we were questing in Enidwaith was always my logout spot when I was in this zone. It's uh, right at the base of Harndirian. And uh, it's got a beautiful view of the rolling in stony hills in either direction. There was usually wind whistling through the plains as you quested in Enidwaith. And, uh, you know, really is a beautiful zone. Uh, you know, for a transitional zone, they got a lot of things right here. And I'd have to say of anywhere at all in the game, um, I think it has the most beautiful skyscapes in terms of uh, the clouds and stars and the full moon, which always seems to be rising over Hondarian whenever we're here. Uh, so, glad to be back in Enidwaith once again. And when I'm in Harndirian, one of the things I always like to do is to recommend to folks to go to the uh, local rep vendors that are on the top of the hill there. Bit of a um, difference with uh, this zone than almost anywhere else in the game that I can think of is uh, that you can earn several emotes through the use of rep reputation and tokens uh, for the Enidwaith zone from the from the vendors at Harndirian, and a lot of people forget about these. But uh, Spin and Jump are two of my favorite emotes that were added to the game, as well as uh, the Golfing Drive and Chip emotes available. Don't pay at the Lotro store. Come down to Enidwaith, do some questing, pick those up from the vendors outside Harndirian. So... Um, I've got our little friend Wormy T here, fairly well secured with some strong line tied to the ends of his thumbs. I'm not afraid to yank those off if I have to. I wanted to apologize for the little mishap we suffered last week in our broadcast. I can assure you nothing of that sort will ever happen again. Grime and I have dis discussed his behavior, and a little later in the broadcast, he will have something to say to our viewers out there. Won't you, Grima? Yes. Well, be that as it may. Let's light our second beacon. All right, so light the beacons coming to you with its usual lack of preparation, editing, polish, you know, anything a professional podcast really looks for. Uh, but uh, we do have CRAP. We always have plenty of CRAP here at LTB. 
Corrections, retractions, and apologies from last week. So last week, I think uh, we set a new record. We basically offended everyone with any shred of decency. Uh, Grima, do you have anything to say to our listeners? Grima? Bollocks. All right, that's enough out of you. Uh, Okay, then you just sit there for a while and think about what you did. Over there in the corner. Put that hat on. I should also mention I talked about a one-inch. So one other correction. There is an actual correction. This is from two episodes ago. Um, I was talking about the fact that I would created a first-age level 100 staff for my lore master that I forgot to rename. So here's a question I have for the the viewers out there. And um, we're tabling it. We're tabling it this week. Table. So the question is, um, for those of you who have been out on the beta, can you rename your legendary item when you go through the imbuing process? Uh, assuming imbuing, to some degree, resembles the transaction of reforging, which does allow you to rename your item. I am hoping that that is my out. Let me know if you can rename an item when you imbue it. So why am I asking that question? One of the reasons I'm asking that question is that I am not participating in the beta out on Bull Roar. And why is that? Well... Uh, first of all, uh, there are plenty of folks out there that, uh, you know, from a podcaster's insider perspective are providing glimpses, views, and uh, various videos and commentary on the new zone coming up with Update 16. So there's plenty of stuff out there for folks to access if they're interested. Uh, secondly, um, you know, maybe one difference than I have from a lot of other podcasters, not all of them certainly, but uh, quite a few, is that I have quite a few tunes that are ready to go through the new zone, sitting at level 100 and finished with the content in Central Gondor. And if I can avoid having to repeat that process uh, one more time, I'm going to do it. (laughs) Because taking my fifth tune through there gets kind of old. So I want to keep as much of the freshness of the zone as possible for live and uh, enjoy it along with everybody else, at least for the first couple tunes. And if it's good, it will last. Uh, any other viewer comments? Out? It's tabled, guys, tabled. So, uh, first of all, Fuller Avilia took the time to say hello to me in-game this week. It's always nice to hear from another villain or a villain. Not sure how that goes. We'll call them villains. Um, that doesn't happen to me too often. Always fun to see somebody reach out, though. And uh, the Twitter sphere erupted last week. Uh, Zinger, Braxwolf, Andang, Flossen, Jonathan, Fredless, Jenny, and if I missed anyone else, my apologies. All supported the t- podcast on Twitter last week. Um, and we're appreciative of the uh, the entertainment content, though some of them went over the line advocating a Grima as a full-time co-host on the podcast. That is not happening, Grima. Look at your feet again. Look down, Grima. Down. Good. Uh, so, <clears throat> apart from that, uh, thanks to all those who uh, appreciated our little April Fool's edition of the podcast last week. What else has been going on around the community? Well, from a foreign perspective, I saw quite a few threads this past week on PVMP. Lots of people crying foul over the lack of balance before PVMP changes are due later this year. You know, in the meantime, will people stop playing pending the release of the new PVMP changes and map? Um, you know, the problem is that uh, many think that the character is getting buffed in several ways, including the new legendary item imbuement system. Um, you know, two classes that many creeps complaining are already overpowered. Of course, creeps are always complaining that creeps are overpowered, and the opposite is also true. Um, 
heck, if I can kill something with my guard by myself, it's a lucky day in PvMP land for me. I just don't do enough DPS to burn down a 50,000 morale war leader. Um, so this always happens with every release. It's it's hard to balance it prior to the release. The question is, should they really delay the release while they balance PvMP uh, while they're awaiting, you know, uh, you know, they want to get the content out to the community as soon as possible. And really, you can't balance the PvMP side until the P PvE side is finished. So at that point, is it really worth, you know, several weeks and or months of delay in the release um, before PvMP is is uh, brought up to snuff? And the answer is no, given the resource challenges they have. It's best to get the environment out there. Uh, understand the depth of the changes, any any adjustments they need to make, and then balance PvMP as best they can. Should it follow as close as possible to the initial release? Of course it should. But most folks are going to be out, uh, you know, adventuring in the new zone anyway. So there's usually a delay in PvMP activity while the new zone comes out till people either get up to level or get uh, through the new zone and the latest buffs and, you know, character progression that's available. So I think it's a fair balance. Uh, the LI system changes. So this is something I did want to content, comment on in a little more detail. Uh, so there's a lot of detail coming out right now regarding the imbuement system, which is premiering. Um, so I have an issue with it. You know, there's a lot of detail that's provided with the caveat that it's not finalized and they have reserved the uh, right to make additional changes and they're actively looking for feedback to do so, as is appropriate. But the issue I have with it is this. I was reading through uh, some of the details of the enhancements that were made and um, some of the new legacies that were available for the different classes. And the problem I have is that they're boring, boring, boring. You've got increase this damage, increase that damage, and increase the other damage. Boring. So why is this necessary? Uh, I think, in effect, one way to put it is to make them more grindable. When we had more variation in the legacies that were available for LIs, we did things like added plus one second to a buff or debuff, add plus one target to a skill for AoE, or make it AoE if it wasn't, add plus one pulse to a damage or a heal over time, um, so that we could scale as we added points into our legendaries, we could do plus one, plus two, plus three, plus five seconds, plus ten seconds to the shield of the Dunedain, plus one challenge targets, plus two, plus three, plus four, plus plus three, plus four, plus five challenge targets, or sh sweeping cut damage, plus one pulse to mischievous glee for bolt burglars, plus two, plus three, plus four, plus five. The problem with these types of skills is they do not scale well through an epically long grind. So we're set up now where legacies can be um, can be progressed individually, uh, you know, on a long-term basis. But in order to achieve, you know, the granularity of progression, we can't have plus one, plus two, pl up to plus thirty seconds added to a skill. We can't have more than five targets added to a skill or more than five or six or seven or eight pulses added to a skill because it'll make it OP. So what they decided to do was to get rid of those legacies and replace them with things that were more easily scalable. And if you look through the legacies that are available, what I see is damage, damage, and damage. Uh, you know, all the complexity is being taken out of the system. 
doing more damage does absolutely change absolutely nothing about my skill rotation when I'm in a fight. I'm still going to hit the same skills over and over. Yeah, maybe if I have a legacy for more damage for a particular skill, I'll hit it more frequently. And I understand that we can't, you know, take a cooldown of, you know, 30 seconds of a skill and, uh, you know, take 20 seconds off of it. That makes it OP. Um, so, you know, don't kid yourself. We have an epically long grind to progress these skills to be at the top of what they can achieve. And that's what we have in store ahead of us. But I mourn the loss of the variety in the types of legacies on the weapons. I think it's going to make it a more one-dimensional system and less interesting to play, uh, which is rather unfortunate. You know, I think they still have a chance to fix it. I'm hoping. I don't. I know no no devs listen to this podcast. I can guarantee it, especially after last week. But if they do. Please take to heart. And if you're out there and providing feedback, tell me if you agree with me. Um, I don't want six skills to increase damage on my legacy item or to increase my healing. It's boring. Okay, so what else is the new system bringing? Well, we're going to have need of a lot of crystals, <laughs> uh, starlight crystals, a lot of IXP runes. Hope you're saving those up. And a lot of scrolls of empowerment. A lot, a lot, a lot of scrolls of empowerment. This is another part that I'm not happy about. Um, the medallion and mark costs of Scrolls of Empowerment, to my mind, is the most deflated of any object in the game. Uh, you know, in the past, if I really, really, really needed another tier in a legacy, uh, you know, or I swapped one in so it was only at tier two because when you, you know, swap in a new legacy, it starts at tier two. And it was a key skill, so I really needed it at three, four, five, or even six to be effective. Maybe I'd go out and splurge on two, three, four scrolls from empowerment on a new weapon that I knew I was going to keep for a long time. But for the most part, I wouldn't bother. I wouldn't get my legacy on my legendary items all shiny up to six across the board because it was too expensive. Scrolls from Empowerment are expensive. They don't drop enough in game, and what they do trade for at the skirmish camps is too much. So now what do we have with the new system? Scrolls from Empowerment are going to be more important than ever, apparently, in order to level the legacies on your item to their full capabilities. And uh, to me, that implies a lot of imbalance. I still think there's a way to fix this. If they change the loot tables to make Scrolls of Empowerment drop much more frequently in raids, instances, skirms, or even drop them more frequently as part of uh, you know landscape and epic quests, that could counter it. But uh, I'm very worried that they're driving towards monetization in the store with all the required Scrolls of Empowerment which is a bit of a bummer. So right now, those two changes to the legendary item system have me very concerned. And who asked for all these changes? Uh, all we wanted was to not have to decon and reconstruct new weapons. What if instead of this major system overhaul, you had just made a symbol uh, of the Elder King or of Celebrimbor the cost of upgrading your weapon to the new level cap instead of constructing a new one from scratch? It was really that easy. Instead of using my symbol of the Elder King to create a new first age level age weapon, I would use it to change the level cap for my item from 100 to 110, or whatever the next progression level is. I think that's all that we wanted, wasn't it? But I guess that doesn't drive you to the store. And 
turbine, you know, if this is a major piece of their revenue in the store, they need to figure out a way to compensate for it and at least have it equal. But I'm worried they swung the pendulum too far the other way. So the last factor I'd say that will be important about legendary items is what will, how will these changes be viewed in the long term? Is uh, whether or not max level weapons, i.e. a legendary item that's achieved its full potential through imbuement, whether those are required to do endgame content. You know, if your LA gets slightly more powerful all the time over time and you don't have to do anything else besides play to make that happen, then great. I like that idea. The more you use your weapon, the more legendary battles you're in, the, the more legendary it gets. That's great. But I'm very skeptical right now that these new items will be considered required by some at some point. And in order to be successful in grouping, depending on how the PvE and or raid content is set in terms of difficulty. And there, the grind to get them there will be too huge for the majority to do without resorting to the cash shop pay to win feature. So it's a little bit of doom and gloom on the horizon. It's not too late to fix it. Let's, uh, if you agree with me, let's make our voices heard. So what are we doing in this episode? We're going to talk a little bit about what we've been doing in game this past few weeks. We're going to talk about an interesting quest line in the Mirkwood area around the Haunted Inn. And lastly, we will look at some of the key mechanics of the Vile Maw raid in Moria. If there's any time remaining, we will fling some more garbage at my erstwhile assistant. We all, Lord, Lord knows he deserves it. Iluvatar knows. Sorry. Hang on. All right. Uh, Grima, erase that. I get on that. you got to step up your editing. Make up for your problems. Third beacon. <laughs> Nardal. This week in gaming and or other Toki news. So what other games have I been playing lately? Well, I'm making a little bit of progress on Ori and the Blind Forest. And uh, I would have to say it's a pleasant change of pace from an MMO. It's a pleasant little you know, 3D platformer with nice graphics and sound. Interesting mechanics. A little different. Um, I'm a couple hours into the story so far, so maybe a third of the way through the entire piece. Um, there are some pieces of it that are a little frustrating. Uh, I know the game was supposed to be difficult, but uh, I'm wondering if maybe the fact that I'm using PC controls instead of a hand controller is making it a little more harder than it normally would be. Um, was trying to read reviews prior to getting the game on whether a, PC, you know, a, a game controller was really necessary. And uh, I think I'll be able to get through without it, but it might take a few more tries than perhaps the finer controls would have provided. But um, still recommending that. Um, although at $20, I might wait until it came down in cost. You know, get it that first Steam sale when it comes around for 12 or 15 You'll be getting yourself a good deal. All right, in Lotro, um, did do a little bit of running with Bragg this past week. Uh, my guardian, he is... Um, after hearing some others talk about some of the content they've been soloing recently, I did a Your Bar's Peak solo run myself. Uh, tier 1 was very simple, so that was easy to do, even solo. Uh, tier 2, I was actually making my way through, but it was a bit of a slog. Um, I was able to dispatch a couple of the groups, uh, but I got almost to the first boss fight and decided it was um, just a little too bit a little bit too much time to grind through some of the uh, earlier mobs as a solo in Tier 2. 
and that uh, I was banking on, you know, given the difficulty level, that I was probably going to run into some trouble with some of the bosses on Tier 2. So decided to just um, catch that in and go back and do the Tier tier 1 run, which went very smoothly. Uh, also ran some solo runs in the library and schools, uh, which went well. I was not able to extinguish all the books in time by myself. Not sure if anyone's done that and if there's a trick to doing it when you're soloing it. Uh, but the rest of the run was pretty easy. Uh, my Bjorning has been getting quite a bit of attention lately. Uh, it's now level 66. Um, did a Watcher run. A little bit more on this later. But uh, one thing that I'll mention that was kind of funny. Um, the last major episode I had, I talked about a Halls of Crafting run. Where uh, my Bjorning acquired the legendary um, Brass Anvil. Which is a pocket item that falls out of that instance. Which is uh, great for might-based or you know he heavy armor classes. Um, so after you know running that 30, 40 times with my guardian and never seeing it, I got it in my very first run with my Bjorning. Well, a week later, I ran on my Bjorning my first Watcher run, and I'll talk a little bit more about how that run went went a little later in the podcast. But the amusing part was at the end of at the end of the instance when we did actually take down the Watcher and opened up one of the chests. I won, uh, and I, there were only two or three on-level tunes that were a part of the party, so we all had pretty good chances at the decent loot. And uh, I won uh, the Black Pearl, <laughs> which, um, for those of you who've been around for a while and knew Moria, knew the uh, Moria instance, the Black Pearl was the most sought-after item in the game for, again, for the heavy pocket item for the heavy armor classes. So I think it's basically... The only item I could get in Moria that was better than the Brass Anvil for my Bjorning would have been the Black Pearl. So I was very excited about having the Anvil, and I was going to wear it for a while, you know, out of uh, deference for its, you know, its its uh, historic and nostalgic nature. And now I had to replace it one week later with the Black Pearl. So, <laughs> uh, so pretty good pocket item that um, still still got slotted through level 66. I'll probably have to put my EXP uh, accelerator back in at some point, but. I'm actually enjoying not accelerating through the content at this level, and I'll, I'll mention why in a little bit. Um, so I did run some random Lothlorien quests. Uh, you know, it's always, it's like it's Lothlorien, I consider the ultimate sorbet to cleanse the palate after Moria. You know, you've been, you've been killing hundreds of orcs, you've been, you know, fighting every conceivable monster, slogging through water, fire, lava, whatever, garbage. And then you go out into the sunshine of Lothlorien, and you you light candles, and you you admon admonish partygoers, and you collect daffodils, and you meditate in glades and stuff like that. So it's it's definitely a sorbet to cleanse the palate. Um, so I've been doing some stuff like that around Lothlorien, and the the primary reason was. I needed to get myself in Callus Galadon, which requires friend standing with uh, Galadrim. And, um, you know, I'm not really going to do any of the quests in Callus Galadon, but uh, I'm sorry, it's kind of a requirement. All, all my characters have to be able to get in there through the front gate. None of this shimmying up a rope on the side door. It really doesn't take that much time to grind through enough uh, quests in Lothlorien in order to get uh, friend status, in order to be able to do that. So uh, I did uh, grind around uh, Lothlorien a little bit and got myself through that. And certainly the Calis Galadon um, stable spot is uh, an important waypoint uh, if you're traveling back and forth from Mirkwood 
uh, to Rivendell and and uh, and Moria Twenty First Hall. Um, until you get much later in the game, there aren't too many stables that connect to the Twenty First Hall, and Callus Galadon is one of the primary ones, and that does not open up until you get friend status with uh, with the Galadrim. So there we are. There's that. Um, so uh, completed the Merkwood Merkwood prologue on my Bjorning. Uh, followed the epic quest line through to Danenglor, Thangalhad, breaching the Necromancer's Gate, Salt on the Ring, Ring Wraith's Lair, and uh, and uh, Salt on the Tower. So all the Mirkwood skirms are now open. And by the way, following the epic quest line is kind of funny. You know, you show up with the elves and the dwarves at the gates of Dol Guldur, finally, after all this time, and... Uh, you know, you're very surprised when five Nazgul come marching down behind Gorthal and, uh, you know, threaten everybody and basically kick people around and do what they want. Um, why is everyone so surprised when the Nazgul show up at the gate for the prisoner exchange? You can see the friggin' fell beasts circling the tower from any high point in Mirkwood. <laughs> if you look at Dolgildur and you look up at the tall tower, it's there be circling it 24-7. At least, I think it's either five or six of them. So you know there's Nazgul there. All right. Yeah. Little little minor point. Uh, also got the Master Ascender title by finding the second high tower in Ostgalad, which is always fun to do, and some easy turbine points for a little bit of platforming. Uh, when I'm moving through Mirkwood and following the epic quest line through the Scuttle Dells, I always pick up the Silken Strands quest from Ostgalad because it's the only way to get the uh, Compendium of Middle-Earth. I think it's number two at that stage, and it's nice to have a little stockpile of those if you need them for crafted relics as you move through there. Um, I'm about to hit... I've been following the In Your Absence quest line, and I'm about to hit the Rift of Ner's Gashu skirmish, so that's just opened up as well. And one thing that I like to do as I move through um, the prologue for in your absences, pick up all the different mysterious relics around Middle-earth as we go, um, and uh, go to the gates of all the in your absence uh, instances, because, uh, again, those are easy medallions or turbine points. There's a, there's a deed for opening up each of the, the entrances. So for North Cotton Farm and, and Stone Heights and uh, Sarisiyurama and, and the temple... Um, so when I go up to Forkel, for example, I, you know, I poured up there to follow the epic quest line and find Lothrandir. I always run over and grab the boat and go across to Sarisuryama and get those turbine points. And then I run across to the iron span to the end of that and, um, and, uh, click on the mysterious relic there to finish that piece as well. So kind of cleaning up as I go a little bit. And um, by the way, is, is there a reason they don't open the iron span into Angmar at this point? I'd love to be able to go through that gate and uh, peer, uh, you know, one of the entrances in Dunkovat and Angmar. Oh, well. All right. Um, so all the Mirkwood skirms are unlocked, and I'm about done with Mirkwood. And I have to say, I like Mirkwood. The stories are good. I think the areas are well done. The quests are generally pretty fun and in some cases inventive. I think yeah, it's a smaller expansion, but I think it's an underrated quest pack, personally. I do enjoy it. Uh, the plan next is to drain Enidwyth. Uh, I miss that zone. That's why I'm here now. I think it's also underrated. The train is beautiful, and for a transition quest, uh, transitional zone, the quests are unusually engaging. 
So that's what I would have been doing with my Bjorning. Uh, nothing on the Minstrel or Cappy, both languishing at level 100. Uh, my Lore Master is now my fourth tune that's been all the way through Central Gondor and with the Vanguard of Middle-Earth title uh, to get the symbol of the Elder King that's available through that. And I uh, haven't figured out which tune to use it on, but I've got that in the vault right now, waiting to see which might be next. Um, maybe a belt for Bragg, a shiny new belt for Bragg. Um, jewelry and stuff in my lore master is in a decent place right now. Could maybe use a piece or two of essence gear when I get some better one, when I get some better essences to slot in there. Uh, lore master ran a 12-man deeping wall, uh, big battle. And, uh, you know, got some decent rewards out of there. Um, starting to run into some repetition with the rewards I'm getting from some of my tunes that have been through there for a while. Problem with a 12-man deeping wall is it just takes forever to get everybody organized sometimes. Uh, you really need to be careful sometimes with the raid boss. Um, if you know the person is uh, not very well organized, you know, it could be an hour before an instance starts. That's no good. You start losing people and you have to replace them and it just perpetuates itself. That happens occasionally in game. So if you're a raid leader, um, one thing people want to do is play. Not afraid to fail <laughs> as long as we're playing. <laughs> so get things moving. All right, the other character that's gotten a lot of love last couple weeks is my Berg. I've been on a Bergathon. I've been Bergerific. Uh, he went from level 85 to 93 over the last couple weeks, uh, which at that stage, you know, eight levels is pretty good. And his morale when he entered Western Rohan was at about 5.5K and now is up to, um, you know, I'm still in Western Rohan, is now up to 11K. So feeling a lot more resilient at this point, mostly just through questing uh, rewards uh, that you get through Western Rohan. He finished the Kingstead quest chain through Alberg, Fenmarch, and the Beacon Watch to get that class trait point. He's moved on to Stoke, and he's now in Woodhurst, actually. And that quest chain in Stoke and Woodhurst is so long, it takes forever. Ugh, can't believe I did all that stuff in Stoke, and then you got to do all the stuff in Woodhurst, and then you got to go all the way through the two or three little filler zones and then come back. Ugh, all right, so one more time. Um... One thing that I thought was interesting about my Berg is I ran into a snag uh, doing some of the epic quests line around Stoke where you have to defend an NPC group. Um, so one is the assault in Torsberry uh, that you do with four or five or six different NPCs. And then when you, the, the Thane from Stoke, I think her name is Frithild, when you do a couple instances with her on foot where you're fighting off waves of, uh, waves of ads in the fields. And, um, you know, this is something I've never had a big problem with other tunes in the past that I was having difficulty with on my Berg, especially the one in the fields kind of west of Stoke. Um, I probably ran it maybe six times, and I was not dying, but I couldn't keep the NPCs alive. And, uh, you know, each wave I would lose maybe one of them, so each wave would get a little more difficult. And by the time I got to the last one with the boss, Frithild would be killed every time before I could get the boss down. So I ran that maybe five or six times, and each time you run it, you have to run all the way back to the meat hall to get the quest, open it up again, and then run back. It was getting a little annoying. Um, so I sent a chat out to folks, and they recommended, you know, instead of going in Quiet Knife, try the yellow line, which makes sense, since the yellow line is a grouping, um, in my mind, a grouping trait line anyway that allows you to have some more CC. So the burger and the, the, burger and the yellow line can throw dust in the eyes to multiple 
targets and then run startling twist to, to stun three folks at a time, um, which is very helpful in this kind of instance. And I definitely got much closer when I started doing that, but I failed again. At this point, I just asked a kidney to come over and, you know, he was level 100 and he slaughtered everything, helped me out. So um, I think I could have done it with the yellow line if I'd practiced a bit more and been really tight with, you know, multiple buffs on everything that I could do, or maybe if I'd leveled maybe a bit more so I could, um, you know, kill folks faster. Uh, but uh, there's a, a tip for you bergs out there having trouble keeping NPC, large groups of NPCs alive because you don't have the aggro and a AOE skills. Give the yellow line a try um, with the AOE crowd control. Um, so now my Berg is run all the way through the Empic quest line in Western Rohan and has five big battles on tap. Oh boy. And um, also have some gear laid by waiting for me in my vault for level 95 when I get there. And what I'd like to do is get some more grouping experience with my Berg. I think they'd be fun in groups. Although the other quests, the other classes sometimes don't know what to do with them. <laughs> they just kind of let them do their own thing, which is, I guess, the fun of being a Berg. So that's plenty about what I've been doing in-game this week. Let's move on to our fourth beacon, Erelas. For Erelas this week, I would like to talk a little bit. We've got a Lotro, uh, Lotro quest highlight this week. A particular quest chain that starts at the Haunted Inn in Mirkwood. Some of you guys may know the one that I'm talking about. If you have not done this area and you want to preserve the mystery, because a mystery it is then you might want to skip through some of the next parts. But the Haunted Inn quest chain, uh, first of all, the Haunted Inn itself is a is a kind of a neat little area on kind of the side, northern sidewall of Mirkwood. It's kind of uh, snug, look like it's almost hewn out of the stone that's there, and it's next to a large waterfall with a rope bridge across it and a pool, and uh, leads up into an area of ruins that's pretty interesting. Um, just south of Denanglor, one of the uh, one of the skirms that you can earn in Mirkwood, and one of the quests that you can pick up in the Haunted Inn is from a ranger called Idrinfer. I'm probably pronouncing that incorrectly, but it's close enough. And uh, he asks you to take a look at um, you know there seems to be a, an air of unease hanging over the town that's making all the Maladrim uh, Maladrim nervous. And so he asks you to go check out a little graveyard that's next to the town to look for a peculiar tomb, as it's called. This quest line is level 62. And as you go and investigate uh, the graves around the graveyard, you realize that uh, a large majority of the people have passed away all within a short time span, a number of years back. And uh, when you bring that evidence to the ranger, his curiosity is piqued, and he asks you to uh, you know, seek out the town and see if there are there are any more clues you can figure out as to mystery as to why the town has died and and uh, you know what is this this uh, feeling of ease that hangs over it and so you you go through the town and you eventually find some uh, some spirits that say oh there's nothing wrong you know we have a growing town there's nothing 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 strange to see here please disperse move along and uh, after a number of iterations of going back between the ranger and the town you find a number of clues around the town indicating that there's been some violence there in the past, that that uh, stockpiles of weapons have been hidden here and there. And eventually you learn that uh, basically the town's uh, demise um, was uh, 
was that the same time that the the power of the necromancer rose again in Mirkwood and in Dol Guldur, and that um, you know a shrine to the necromancer has been erected outside the town, and there was a power play between those that uh, you know were corrupted and seduced by the necromancer and those that didn't want anything to do with him. Uh, in those towns, first folks were summarily murdered. You find some um, some journal entries of uh, you know some officers of the town that basically talk about you know the the uh, awfulness of the the events and what occurred there and how they you know how the guilt that they felt and so forth and eventually by confronting the spirits of the men who murdered the other townsfolk and followed the necromancer you get a chance to set things right and release their spirits and you know set them at peace so um you know, what I like about this quest chain, it's a really nice little story arc. This is a little Lotro town, uh, Ogadame, I think it's called, uh, with a sad story, probably one of many, but it really brings home the evil of the necromancer and his influence on the area in a very personal and intimate way. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, there's a little mystery involved. There's history that, of the area that you get kind of embroiled in. You kind of, you know, start to feel at a, you know, at a very deep level um, the impact that the necromancers had, not just on the physical space, but on the, and the inhabitants of, the, of Mirkwood over time. And, and uh, you know, it makes you feel um, for the, the fate of the town and for those that were put to death for standing up for their beliefs. So it's very well done. It's a quick little quest line, maybe five, six, seven quests in all to get through it. And it tells a nice little story as you move through the zone towards the, uh, the ultimate goal of confronting some of the agents of darkness in Dol Guldur. So next time you're there, if you haven't done it in a while, run through that. Uh, the text is very well written, and it's an excellent example of storytelling within Lotro. Min Riman. Now we've reached the part of LTB where we have a word from our sponsors. You've tried fad diets and trendy workouts, but those pesky pounds just keep coming back. We guarantee, though, you will feel the burn using the new Endless Stairmaster. From foundations of stone to the peak of Xeric Ziggle on the silver tain, dwarven engineers, known for their powerful thighs and buttocks, use this secret workout exclusively to keep svelte amidst the feasts of Kazadoom. Nine out of ten Balrogs recommend it to keep those pesky gray wizards off your back. The Endless Stairmaster is the last workout you'll ever need. We've arrived at Kalanhad. Kalanhad is aflame. This week in Kalahad, we are watching The Watcher. So, as I mentioned earlier, in this, in this past two weeks, I ran the Vile Maw on my Bjorning for the first time, uh, which, uh, you know, ignites a, a number of deeds to get through there. And uh, the Watcher these days is, is, can still be a fun experience for those of you who haven't done it, or even for those of you who had. It, uh, you know, there's certainly mechanics that need to be followed and adhered to. And, um, you know, despite the fact that you may be 40 levels over the original content, uh, you still have to pay attention to certain things. Uh, now, it's, it's certainly, you know, a lot of the mechanics have lost their bite and, you know, you can make mistakes, you know, whereas when this was the ultimate raid in the game, you know, a single mistake could sink a party and obviously it, it took weeks to figure out these mechanics. But now they're well documented and, uh, you know, there's an opportunity 
for for folks to go in there and and experience the content and you know not being a top level raider and still have success, which is fun. I think that's part of the progression of the game is. As uh, as I've said in the past, when the older raids, you know, you can overlevel them, that opens it up for more casual players to be able to go in and experience that content. However, now that that's happened, what we're finding is a lot of players that joined the game more recently um, go into the raid and have no experience with some of the mechanics of the Watcher. So I'm sure there's a lot of folks uh, that listen to the podcast that know exactly how to run the Watcher and have done it dozens of times, but uh, there may be a few out there that haven't. So actually thought I would go through and run through some of the basic mechanics of the Watcher Raid, see if that would be of interest to any of you all. So a couple mistakes were made in this uh, Watcher Raid that we did that I think are always interesting. Uh, first of all, I hit a massive lag spike right at the uh, start of the raid, as some of you might know, <laughs> when the uh, watcher, watcher screamed with anger. And uh, I end up watching the Watcher Raid for the rest of the, <laughs> for the, rest of the raid from the beach. So um, I was having, uh, you know, I normally don't have that many lag problems in Lotro, but for the last couple of weeks I've been having some issues and have been basically avoiding group content and raids because I've been going through these periods where six, seven, eight seconds I'm frozen in place, can't do anything. And, uh, you know, in a raid, if, if, your folk, if your party's depending on you, that's, you know, often the difference between success and, you know, um, coming back to it with a little red haze over your head. Uh, but uh, this past week, I ran a, a disk check, actually, on my computer, which I had not done for a while, and recovered a number of bad sectors. Um, and uh, knock on wood, since then, I've noticed an improvement in my game performance. So for those of you experiencing some of those glitches, um, and if you haven't done a check disk in a while, go ahead and run that. It, uh, it worked for me, or apparently it has, at least so, so far. Uh, so at this time, I had a massive lag spike right as uh, the watcher screamed with anger, and uh, ended up sitting out the rest of the rest of the uh, rest of the game on the beach watching the action. But that did allow me to kind of uh, play communicator. You know, if if you're ever down in a raid, you're not out. Um, you know, you can be another eye, keeping an eye on people's uh, you know people's buffs, debuffs, poisons uh, that need removal, health levels, etc. You can call out targets. There's plenty that you can do, even though you're not active in a raid. As a matter of fact, when you're not controlling your character, it frees you up to do a lot more. Um, you know, to help out the healer and keeping an eye on people's morale bars. Uh, you know, watching for key mechanics. You know, if uh, if there's an induction that's occurring that's dangerous to the party, you can call it out. All kinds of good stuff you can do uh, when you're down but not out of a raid. So in this case, I was able to play communicator to a couple other folks, and there were plenty in there that didn't know what they were doing. And uh, one of the first mistakes that was made is in the middle of the raid, one of the guys peeled off and started picking up the little glowing dwarf corpses around the corners of the room. And look, you, you can't do that in a raid. <laughs> you got to wait till the fight's over. So maybe he didn't know that those would still be available after the raid was over. But uh, you know, I sent him a couple of private tells uh, to let him know that he needed to get back with the action and and maybe wait till after the boss was down before he did that. Um, secondly, there were a couple of people that hang hung back by the beach on the watcher as uh, the phases progressed into phase two and phase three, and uh, you know there was a, basically a, a hunter who sat there arranging tentacles the entire time, and you know basically had a zero impact on the fight. So. Uh, you know, I had to remind him multiple times to get out with the group and stick with his leader and, you know, focus on the, um, 
on the tentacle targets, you know, that were being identified if he wanted to, you know, be any, of any assistance whatsoever. So eventually he got the idea and moved out with the rest of the party. All right, so um, some, of the watcher, some of the watcher key mechanics. So first of all is what's called phase one, and phase one should be the easiest phase in the raid, and yet inevitably if there's people that haven't been in there before, you know, you would lose two or three folks on every watcher scream to start out. So uh, basically in phase one, everyone moves into the room. This is a, a raid where there's only one room. It's one boss fight with multiple phases. Um, a little more complex than the turtle, though. <laughs> so you move into the room and everyone bunches up and the watcher screams with anger when he starts the fight. And what he'll do is he'll pick a random member of the group and scream at him a one shot. So he will kill anybody who's in the line of his scream. And if the group is spread all over the beach, there's no way to um, know for a fact which guy he's going to pick and how you're going to avoid that scream. So the only way to do it is if everyone groups up on their lead and is in a single line so that when you see the graphic come up that the watcher uh, screams with anger, you can move uh, right as a group knowing that the, the target of the scream is going to be behind you in the line that everybody was in. So you move as a group to the right, and then you come up to the beach and burn down uh, two wriggling tentacles. Uh, once you burn down, you may have to do, depending on your level, you may have to do one more avoidance of the vile scream uh, before you get to the next phase and burn down the second tentacle. But as you stay on the beach, as you burn down the two tentacles, you can then move into the water. Um, so after you burn down the two wriggling tentacles, you move forward into the water. Um, you want to avoid uh, tentacles that are spawning in the, in the shallow waters. They're called crushing tentacles and squeezing tentacles. And some of them will root you in place until they are killed, which kind of will delay the party. But basically at this stage, you should be able to move out into the water, swim through, avoiding tentacles until you get to the little bridge that the watcher pulls down. Um, it's just below the surface of the water. So one of the keys to, if you haven't been in here before, you can turn off a setting in your graphics um, that, uh, that changes the transparency of the water so that you can see the bridge underneath it a little more easily versus having a reflective surface. And that helps you with positioning if you've never been in the raid before. But basically, the, the watcher yanks a bridge down from over its head. Um, it's sitting in the water in front of him just below the surface. You can swim out to it and stand on it. And as you do that, there are um, two more tentacles which attack you out in the deep water. Um, they're called massive tentacles. Lots of different names to remember. So there's two massive tentacles out in front of the bridge, and you have to burn down each one of both of those. Now, as you as you kill the second massive tentacle. Um, a giant swarm of 12 crushing tentacles pops out of the water and starts doing massive AOE damage to anyone that's within range. So what we always used to do is, uh, when you're on level um, and you have to be careful about it, is um, as the second massive tentacle is burned down, we would move everybody off to the left part of the bridge and leave a heavy class, hopefully you know one or more champions, out where the, the crushing tentacles would spawn. And we would have a Either a captain put a shield of the Dunedain on him, or you know your minis would heal, hit their biggest heal on him just as it was spawning, or a burglar would hit an all-green FM right beforehand so that we'd have massive healing going on, and we'd let the heavy, you know, with AOEs, the 
the uh, champion burn down those tentacles um, because they do, you know, basically any squishies within range were going to be dead. Okay, so after the 12 crushing tentacles are killed, um, you have to get ready for the Watcher. Uh, the Watcher's head is going to pop out of the water in the next, you know, 10 or 15 seconds. And before he does so, the tank needs to swim out past the area where his head is um, so that when he pops up out of the water, you can quick hit him with an aggro so that he'll spin around and not be facing the group. So, of course, the Watcher has a you know, massive AoE damage, and um, if he's not spun away from the group, basically, on level, it's a wipe. And what happens is, as the tank swims out into position, he'll come up for air, like with one little, he'll, like his head will dart above the surface and he'll go back down. And then when he comes up again, he's going to scream. So the, the tank basically has to be ready for the head to emerge and that little pop out and hit it with one aggro skill before it goes back down um, in order to save the group on level. Um, so the rest of the group is now standing on the bridge behind the Watcher. And uh, as this next phase, phase three starts, where you're fighting the Watcher's head, um, you basically have to keep a constant... Uh, rotation of corruption removals going because the uh, the watcher generates a couple corruptions every couple seconds and if uh, if you don't keep up with them they get out of control and they will eventually you know swarm the party and take everybody down so everybody especially those with remote corruption removal skills like uh, lore masters and uh, hunters have to be hitting those corruption removal skills constantly and your tank since he's in melee range should be hitting his uh, his sting as well. Now it's okay for melee classes to swim out to the head from behind and pound on it a little bit, but you have to be careful about when you do it, because he does eventually do another scream where he jumps up out of the water and will blow people back and do a massive 360 AOE. And if you're within melee range at that point, you'd be dead. So you have to know what you know. I would say if you don't know when that happens or you don't know the sign for it because it's your first time in there, just stay on the bridge. <laughs> Use whatever you know range skills you have and be patient. So what happens is when the head pops up, there's two more tentacles that come. They're called shaking tentacles. And what happens is if both those tentacles are alive, they basically heal the watcher's head. So you have to get um, the tentacles in a position where you burn one down completely. Uh, normally you would get um, two ranged classes, hunters if possible, to um, get aggro on one on each tentacle um, so that they, you know, uh, the one across from them so, so that you have ranged aggro on the tentacles because they do too much melee damage to deal with. Uh, but um, a hunter can basically range tank each of the tentacles. So you get two hunters, one on each tentacle that get aggro, and then you burn down one of the tentacles with the group and then you burn the second tentacle all the way down till it's almost dead, say to like 10k, and you leave it. You leave it up. Now, when you have one tentacle down and one tentacle up at 10k, you can start to DPS the Watcher's head. Um, eventually, after maybe 30 or 30 seconds, maybe a minute, um, another tentacle will spawn. As soon as another tentacle spawns, you kill the one that you had down to 10k. And then you bring the new one down to 10k. So again, you're you're at one tentacle down to 10k, ready to be killed whenever whenever you have it. And uh, then you DPS the Watcher's head again. Um, another tentacle will spawn. So you burn down the 10k one immediately. The reason you have it at 10k is that you can kill it almost immediately. 
Because once the two tentacles are up, the healing of the Watcher's head will occur, which is what you're trying to avoid. So basically, at that point, you're in a cycle of burning one tentacle down, keeping one alive, and uh, DPSing the head, and watching out for the the Watchers, uh, watching out for Watcher corruptions, continuously removing those, as well as the 360 AOE scream um, during which you should not be in melee range. And geez. I think the Watcher is 80k morale, which you know back in the day was terrifying, but now nowadays is like a you know trash mob in uh, <laughs> in Erebor. So um, so usually it only takes like one tentacle cycle if you have a bunch of hundreds that are in the Watcher raid now to get them down. It's pretty easy, but back in the day it was quite a dance that you had to do. Um, so now that the Watcher is dead, you can go ahead and move around the room and collect the four lost dwarves to finish off that deed. Um, there is a deed for killing Watcher tentacles, and uh, back in the day when you'd have to kill a lot of tentacles because the fight was so long, you could work that down after maybe two runs. But now with the quick runs from having overleveled characters in, you might actually have to run three, four, five, six Watchers in order to kill enough tentacles to get that deed done. And that deed is one of the ones required uh, for the Kaz Savior of Kazadoom meta deed, which of course you would want. If you want to get um, the Rovania meta deeds done, plus uh, from a loot standpoint, you'll get two coins of Nimrodel instead of one, uh, which you would get from the Turtle Raid. Uh, if you want to save up for first age 60 level first age items for your alts, you might possibly get a coin of Spirit, um, which you can trade for an above average armor piece in the 21st Hall if you have an on level tune. Uh, there are second age and first age 60 level legendary items, of course, that drop. And, of course, a chance of the Ominous Pool. And the Ominous Pool is the Watcher uh, yard item, which um, if you basically, if you go and stand in the middle of it and click on it, a tentacle will pick you up in the air and dangle you around as it would if it was uh, one of the shark tank tentacles in the, um, in the deep water in the raid itself. And then we'll eventually restore you back down to the ground. So it's always fun to have an ominous, uh, ominous pool in your yard with a nice animation. All right. Well, if you've never tackled the Watcher before, um, a lot of what I said might be some garbage. But if you've done it before, it might be a good review. Um, you might be shaking your head and saying, I got it wrong. You might be saying, yeah, I remember doing that. Now I'm confident to go in again. Uh, but if you are going to do it for the first time and you're going to do it close to on level, I do recommend that you go out and check the the Lotro wiki for strat to read through the strat. Um, it's got some diagrams that shows the positioning I just talked about and reminds you of the phases and steps and uh, is a good primer. Lots of information out there about the raids. It's been so long. And uh, I think that's maybe the first talk discussion. I've done combat mechanics, but that's the first raid mechanic I've done. Yikes. Kind of scary. Um, you know, May do more of them in the future. Might not. Tell me if you uh, found it useful. And in the meantime, let's move on to our last beacon. It brings us to Halifurian. Time for blessed relief. It's the end of the 31st episode of Light the Beacons. I would love to hear your plaudits, feedback, rants, diatribes, and most of all, your constructive critique. You can contact me at bragsonofbalan at gmail.com. That's Bragg with two A's. The second A stands for Assault with a Deadly Weapon on my assistant. 
on Facebook or Twitter at Bragson of Ballon and my website at Light the Beacons where you can post your comments directly on the podcast. And I kindly request you to take the time to create an iTunes review. If you are so inclined, I very much appreciate it. If your comments incite me to forego my my legendary dwarven apathy, I will try to include them in the next podcast or at least respond in some way. So I hope you laughed either at or with me. I hope you might have learned at least a little something you didn't know before or perhaps looked at the game with a slightly different perspective. And most of all, I hope you enjoy your week in Middle-earth. Update 16 is coming, folks. Osgiliath is on the horizon. This is Bragg, son of Balan, signing off. Baruch Kazad. And remember... The next time you're poisoned and kidnapped by a whiny little spider and lugged halfway across Eriodori against your will, don't despair. Light the beacons. All right, Grima, give me a piggyback ride to Erigion. Up we go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs>